Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are talking with Reverend Charlie Arp. Charlie lives in Evanston, Illinois, and is a religious, communist, Marxist, Christian, ordained Unitarian Universalist minister. He is completing his first book, Jesus Made Me a Communist, in the very near future. His online ministry is the Church of the Revolution, primarily on YouTube, which will in the future offer in-person events. He will begin serving as the lead parish minister for a Unitarian Universalist congregation in August of 2022. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Pip. How are you? Good. How are you today? Uh, it's just a nice, calm day for me. I've been somewhat busy lately, so it's nice to have a day that isn't busy <laughs> and to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, well, I'm I'm very excited. Um, you were one of the first people that I thought of when I decided to create this podcast. So, um, well, I, I am honored. Awesome. Um, so, I guess just to start with, let's dive in. Uh, what's the Church of the Revolution? Okay. Um, Church of the Revolution emerged out of work I was doing. Well, it, it, it really became what it is now during the uh, pandemic. I think year two of the pandemic, actually. Um, well, are we in? That's the question. Are we in year two? No, we're, almost, we're in year three now. Um, but it was last year. Um, I was working with a congregation. Uh, as a parish minister, a Unitarian congregation in Quincy, Illinois, and I was only quarter time, so I had a lot of time otherwise, and I have wanted to create a, what I would say is a, a church of communists or for communists or about communism for a long time, and I've actually had predecessors of this, of the Church of the Revolution, which is almost, which is right now entirely online. I, I would be happy to do in person but right now it's online and we say that jesus is a communist using the present tense that wherever the true spirit of jesus is it will take a communist form which means liberation of the poor and oppressed and that has been a guiding part of my whole decision to go into ministry approximately a little over a decade ago i kind of had a moment where I had been sort of an agnostic and not really thinking explicitly about Christianity at all. I would raise Christian, but I wasn't, didn't consider myself a Christian at that point. I was in a class on nonfiction writing where you do a sort of memoir, personal essay. And it was doing that, recounting the years that I had lived with a commune. I'd lived with a commune for about nine years. Um, that was Christian. It was Mennonite, in fact. And I had started calling myself an anarcho-communist at that point. So that's where the original version of being a communist for Jesus came from. But then I went through this agnostic stage that was over a decade. I mean, maybe in almost two decades. And then in 2011, I was writing about that period of my life. And I realized, oh, that's still there. I am a Marxist now because of Jesus and of liberation theology and of living with a commune. So Church of the Revolution is my attempt to sort of create 
an, an online ministry that will possibly in the future, hopefully include in-person events around rethinking Jesus from a communist liberationist perspective and a revolutionary perspective, which is very different than the mainstream and particularly the conservative Christian view of who Jesus is. So do you remember um, like what stage of your life you came to the conclusion that Jesus and communism were compatible ideas? Well, yeah. So when I was, so I, this goes way back. I was, so I'm a Pentecostal preacher's kid. My dad was a Pentecostal pastor. My grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor. My great-grandfather was a Pentecostal deacon or elder. I don't know. This was like in the first part of the 20th century. So it goes deep in my family history, right? We're all identified with this religion. That is a very emotional form of Christianity. And Jesus is, you know, super important. Um, I went to Pentecostal summer camp one year and I was listening to, uh, there was a, was a, a youth, a, sorry, a college age choir, right? College age kids were a choir. They were one of the musical guests at this camp, so to speak. And we were talking to the choir, a bunch of us kids who we were probably junior high kids. And somebody asked, this was the six, the seventies, right? So the, so the Vietnam war was still kind of on everybody's mind. I don't remember if it was over yet or not. It may not have been actually, I'm pretty sure it wasn't over yet. And so war and social issues, racism was all in the air, right? Very in the air. And so somebody asked a question about communism. And one of the people in this college age choir said, well, communism is a beautiful idea, but, Christ but humans are too sinful for it to be real. And in my head, I'm like, well, if it's a really a beautiful idea, then Jesus would want it to be made real. That's the initial, like the initial <laughs> sort of, I'm thinking against the grain, right? Of, well, if communism is a beautiful idea, why can't we make it real? Wouldn't Jesus want us to make it real? Then I learned that the early Christians lived communally. That's described in the second chapter of Acts and in the fourth chapter of Acts. They had no possessions. They shared everything they had. They had no poor people because everything was shared equally. And that led to, you know, as an adult, deciding I wanted to live with a commune. And that happened in 1986 that we moved to Evanston to live with a commune. And so I don't know that I would have used the word communist at every stage of that journey, but I did read a book entitled Communism in the Bible by a liberation theologian from Mexico, Jose Porfirio Miranda. And that, that book kind of settled it for me that yes, communism is the right word to describe the way Jesus wants the world to become. And, and um, I would, at that point, I would have called myself an anarcho-communist because I was still, I was, you know, I was very hostile to the state, I think, <laughs> because the state was, you know, the Vietnam War. And then I was in, and this was the Reagan years in the 80s, and I didn't like Reagan, I didn't like Bush, and I didn't even like Clinton when he came along. So I was sort of an anarchist. That shifted a few years later, and I began to use the term socialist. Um, but all through that, Jesus as a communist, at least in the, in the sort of primitive religious communist sense, was still part of my intellectual furniture, but I didn't. You know, the word communism has so many negative associations that it wasn't until much later 
that I felt like it made sense for me to start calling myself a communist in part to challenge the negative association. What was the reason that you went from being an anarchist communist to a Marxist? Well, I've always had, well, I shouldn't say, okay, so anarchist communism was actually becoming a thing among a, a group of Mennonites um, because there were, there were in the 80s Mennonite communes of various kinds, including the one I was in. But they were all small. The one I was in was actually fairly big as communes go. You know, it was still probably at its height, a couple of hundred members. But that's big for a commune, especially in an urban area like Evans, South Evanston. Um, and so um, so the anarcho-communism was because Mennonites are pacifists, right? So they're suspicious of the state already because of the state wages war, right? And the state uses violence to control um, society. That's, you know, that's very inimical to the Mennonite vision in and of itself, whether your politics are radical or more what I would call quietist, sort of withdrawing from society. Mennonites have been known for being withdraw. They withdraw from society rather than engage it. But that had changed. And I think the Vietnam War in the 60s really changed that for a lot of Mennonites. They became more activist. There was this idea of a Gandhian pacifism that had come from Martin Luther King that had begun to affect Mennonites. And so there was a rising social consciousness among Mennonites, which is why I joined the Mennonites, um, because that mattered to me. But it was somewhat anti-state. It was opposed to the state. And I would say my experience of living in the commune was not all roses, right? Um, this was a community formed of people mostly with high educations, you know, and I was a college dropout. Um, I had lived in poverty as a kid at different points in my life. Most of them had lived fairly comfortable middle-class lives. So there was a class difference. And so all, in the end, I ended, ended up not joining the commune. I tried for like nine years to fit in, but I couldn't. And and this will be give you an example, and this uh, this leads into why the state, my understanding of the state, changed. I was in college, um, wanting to finish an undergraduate bachelor's degree, but I had just had my we had we my wife and I had just had our second child, and we could not afford. She could she had to quit working when the child was born, because it was the eighties and there wasn't really we couldn't really afford childcare. So we asked the commune if they would support me continuing in school. And they said they would not, that they believed that, that it was God's will, although they didn't use that language, but the implication was that they had decided that it was the right decision for me to drop out of school. I did not. I chose to take student loans and continue for one more year. At the end of that year, I ran, we ran out of, it was obvious it was unsustainable. I was gonna go so deep in debt and this was, you know, this was the the late 80s when, when student debt was really starting to ramp up. I mean, and it's worse now, much worse. But back then, the amount of student debt that I was carrying was, was considered, you know, wow, we've never seen this level of student debt. You know, and I just said, I'm not going to keep going. So I did drop out. But the fact that the state would give me money to go to school when a com Christian commune would not brought into me into question about, okay, what does it mean that the state is willing to give me money to 
get an education. Now they, I had to take out loans to finish and that was going to become awful. But in the beginning, it was free money, right? Because back then there were lots of grants. And so I began to realize that there was a duality to the state, that there were things the state did for poor people like food stamps, like college grants, um, like Medicaid, right? There were things that the state did for the poor that even if it didn't solve poverty and didn't make poverty any less horrible, I mean, it did make it less horrible, but it was still, I began to see that you could use state power to help the poor, even if it was minimal. And so from, so I decided that being anti-state, because there were a lot of people who wanted to believe that to be an anarchist, you had to oppose even money to the poor from the state. They said that was just, that was wrong. The state should have nothing to do with helping the poor people. It should all be mutual aid communes. And that never seemed realistic to me. And I'd been a part of a commune and I'm like, yeah, they weren't really great with mutual aid with me. They, did, they tried to make a decision for me that I didn't agree with. So in the end, I decided that the state has an ambivalent role that's not wholly evil, but pretty much mostly evil. So when, if you're a Marxist, what you believe is in overthrowing the state and creating a state based on the worker, the working class. Now that didn't exactly happen in Russia, but that was the intent. Vladimir Lenin talked about it in that way, but he died within a decade of the revolution. And then Joseph Stalin came to power and he had a different idea of the state. But I think the original Marxist intent was not that the state as we know it under capitalism and liberalism would continue, that it has to be destroyed and replaced with a state that serves the working class and the poor directly. And so that's the difference. I mean, anarchism, there are anarchists who will still call themselves Marxist. There are probably not many of them, but well, actually, there's a good number. But they won't call themselves Leninists. Like I would say that I think Lenin was right about a lot of the things he said, particularly before the Russian Revolution. After the Revo Russian Revolution, they took power and it got really murky. <laughs> and anyway, that's a complicated answer, I think. But this, the basic is that I shifted from a very the state can do nothing right to, well, the state can do a few things right, and we should seize the power to make it do those things better. Um, and that doesn't mean through elections. I, I, I think elections are important for mobilizing social movements, but they are not enough in themselves to end capitalism, which is the goal of a communist, is to end capitalism. So while I use elections, I believe in elections to sort of mobilize a movement. I think Bernie Sanders mobilize a really important movement, but now that he's unlikely to run for a third attempt, where is that energy gonna go now? Because it can no longer focus around him. So elections are, have a limited value. Anyway, that's a overly long answer to what I think about the state is that the state is an ambivalent entity. And in a certain sense, a revolutionary movement for overthrowing capitalism, overthrowing oppression, needs to use some some tools of the state but we should not just take the middle class capitalist state or the bourgeois capitalist state as it is as a model for what we want to do after the revolution okay i appreciate that answer very much um, thank you do you feel like your personal experiences with poverty like have something to do with your communist ideals Absolutely. Um, so 
we lived, my parents, uh, my dad was a preacher, I mentioned that. Um, and he was never terribly successful because, you know, being a, a preacher is kind of like being a small business owner. You, you, you sort of, or a manager, maybe even better to call yourself a manager of a small business. The small business already exists. It's called a church or a parish. You were hired to come in there and run it. And the thing is, is my dad could never get big churches. He could only get small ones. And he just never made a lot of money doing that. And he, you know, and so we were sort of on the low end of the middle class because we had houses always because every church that my dad served provided a, a house for us it's called a parsonage. But I had this clear sense that that came from God. It didn't come from it didn't come from because my dad was wealthy. It, it came from it was a gift of God. That's what I thought about the houses we lived in. They were good houses. Some of them were not great, but most of them were pretty good. And, you know, the church collectively decided where to buy a house. So, um, and then the 70s hit and it was the, the, the recession started to come. You know, this was Nixon and then Gerald Ford and then Jimmy Carter, this wave of recessions and the energy crisis. And, and actually, as I've studied this from a Marxist perspective, the 70s was when the profit rate of capitalism began a terminal decline. It had peaked in the 60s, and then it reversed. And now businesses struggled to make a profit. And it wasn't a huge struggle, but, but it was enough of a struggle that the business class became mobilized to defund social programs through Nixon, Carter, and into Reagan, Reagan especially, this defunding social programs because, because the business class saw that as a chance to procure profit. And I could go into why that's true. But my point is, is that I was experiencing the recession as a preacher's kid watching my parents struggle. My mom had to get a full-time job. She didn't have to do that when I was much younger, but she did, you know, from like fourth grade on, she had to get full-time job. And that was a shift in our family culture. So we were struggling financially. Um, and we lived with the Pat church that my dad pastored in Chicago was in Humboldt Park, which is a majority Puerto Rican neighborhood. Um, it's a little less majority Puerto Rican now than it was in the 70s, but it's still pretty very much the Puerto Rican neighborhood in Chicago is Humboldt Park. I mean, there's gigantic metal Puerto Rican flag <laughs> that drapes over division, I think, is where that is, which is the south south border of Humboldt Park. So we were in that neighborhood, right? And I'm seeing Puerto Rican neighbors of this all-white church, right? Most of the people in the church were southern white families who had come to Chicago to make a living from the south. So Tennessee, Arkansas. Kentucky. That's where all the people in this church had moved to this area, become part of this church, and then the neighborhood changed to Puerto Rican. And so I saw the poverty of the Puerto Rican neighborhood contrasted with the sort of lower middle class of my dad's church. So that was like my first introduction to street level ghetto, ghetto type poverty, because in that period, Humble Park was pretty bad. It was, you know, nobody was taking, the, the landlords weren't taking care of the housing. It was a really bad neighborhood. So that was my exposure to poverty. And this was after I had heard this communism is a beautiful idea at summer camp. So, you know, this all fed into, you know, this experiencing poverty 
among Puerto Ricans in particular. And then we, my dad would visit neighbor, you know, his Pentecostal colleagues on the South side who were black or there were even white men who led, led black churches. That was a weird experience. So when I went to a black church led by a white man, there were one, there were a few. We know now like Father um, Father Flager in St. Sabina, that's an example of a white pastor of a black uh, church. But, you know, that was an experience for me, but black churches were mostly poor. And so I began this urban experience in Chicago, I began to understand poverty. And I and and the fact that we were experiencing the great the recession of the 70s, and it was really hard on my family because my mom had to work and she didn't have to work before. And then she had a baby and had to stop working. And we had a really hard time. You know, my my sister was born. We had a really hard time. Jumping forward, I come out of I drop out of college for the first time because I couldn't stand. Well, I, got, I fell in love with my wife and I got engaged. And I didn't like the Pentecostal Bible College because they were way so they were so conservative and fundamentalist I couldn't take it. Dropped out and got married and started living, you know, my wife and I living together. And it was just really hard to make a living because I dropped out of college and I could get only like Domino's pizza. Or I worked for a while at a at a uh, what's called a state school in Abilene, which is served developmental disability residents, right? It was a residential school for the developmentally disabled. And I worked there for six months or so. Um, so these jobs I could find were never a lot of money. So I was struggling financially myself as a young adult. I went back to college several times to try to finish the, the damn degree and could never get very far because I ran out of money. So all of that, frustrated me and I'm like and I'm a white dude right <laughs> I have male privilege I have white privilege and I can't make it in this capitalist economy the capitalist economy is satanic it's of the devil <laughs> you know it was just pretty easy to make that equation in my head you know and there's the whole description of Babylon in um, the book of Revelation which you know there's a lot of sexism right she's portrayed as a as a harlot which a sex worker but you know just that the wealth, the emphasis in that passage is really on the wealth and how horrible the wealth system of the world is at the time of the book of Revelation, which is really talking about the Roman Empire. If we, you know, we know what that story now is about Roman Empire. At any rate, just this idea that, that the wealthy system, the capitalist system was satanic and evil and Babylon, which is a big part of Rastafarian theology, right, is... The, the white supremacist capitalist system is Babylon. Um, all that influenced me to basically say, yeah, I'm an anti-capitalist. I am an anarcho-communist and, you know, and became a Marxist. And poverty was right there because I've never made more than $15 an hour, except for one period when I was working for a church. And I was only working part-time for them. So it wasn't like all of a sudden I was making you know, a, a full-time middle-class income. So yeah, poverty, absolutely. That's why I'm as left-wing as I am. You and I have a few things in common. Uh, one is that I've never made much money myself and experienced a lot of poverty as a kid as well. Uh, I did make $25 an hour at one job. I was temping for the State Department for three months, mm. um, which was a weird-ass job, but... Uh, <laughs> um, Poverty has always been part of my journey so far. 
And also, uh, I'm a pastor's kid, just like you. Right. Um, and I'm curious, with your dad being a Pentecostal preacher, is he still alive? No. He died um, in 2005. He was 65 years old. But yeah. Okay. He's, yeah. What did yeah. he think of some of your beliefs? Yeah, my dad my dad was an abusive human being. Let's just put that out there. Yes, he was a pastor. Yes, he was gifted as a preacher. Very smart, but he was not a good parent. Um and he was, you know, he was nurtured in a kind of fundamentalism that just would not allow for a progressive or or I should say a liberation theology. He just couldn't see it. And now I say that one of my dad's favorite thinkers at one point was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer through one of his books in his library. And we talked a little bit about the book, and he thought that he liked a lot of it, but he thought Bonhoeffer's pacifism was wrong. And I was already leaning towards pacifism. I was probably 10 or 11 or 12 when this conversation was happening. My dad tried very hard to convince me, no, no, pacifism is wrong. You know, the, the, the wars of the Old Testament, we should fight We should fight in wars for our country, blah, blah, blah. I never bought it. I mean, this was the Vietnam era. And I'm like, you really? I should, if I were 18, you'd want me to go to Vietnam? I didn't say this. I didn't think of it until years later. I'm like, dad, would you really want me to enlist in Vietnam? <laughs> but I never had that conversation because he, after I became an adult and started going my own way, he basically just didn't know how to deal with me and, he, and we could never have a conversation without arguing and I just said I don't need to argue with you all the time you know we can't have a, a, a healthier relationship I will just let's just not and I I you know so essentially I drew boundaries and said I can't be in relationship to you um and I tried a few times to reconnect and occasionally he would be going through something in his life that would make him a little more sympathetic but for the most part he was pretty committed to his, you know, his his fundamentalism that wouldn't allow for left-wing theology of any kind. And I was deeply committed, even, I mean, even as an agnostic, I would have called myself a socialist. And it was, and it was only when I made the connection a few years later that I'm a socialist because of Jesus, not because of Marx. Marx just helped me be a smarter socialist, but I was a socialist and an anti-capitalist because of Jesus and because of my own poverty. And Marx helped me understand those things better, but he didn't, he, it wasn't like, oh, I read Marx and now I understand the world. You know, I, therefore capitalism is wrong. I didn't come to that conclusion. Marx just helped me understand the implications of the conclusion. Um, and so my father, you know, we never talked about Marx. <laughs> we never, you know, he just would not, he, he just he had his little worldview and his little box and he was also his father was abusive so there was a certain amount of generational trauma and my great-grandfather not the one who was a pentecostal elder my grandfather's father was a very abusive and even not he even abandoned his family so there's a generational cycle of trauma and poverty on my father's side my mother too but you asked about my dad and so my dad just never was willing to do the healing work that he needed to do around his own life. And so he stayed stuck in what I think was a trauma coping theology, 
that just said the world is evil and I'm just going to try to carve out my little personal salvation in the midst of a Trump of a world that's just evil. So mm. yeah, the answer is he never he, he never warmed up to my radical ideas. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm sorry to hear that you had, you know, so much distance between you over the years. My father was abusive too. So I, I can resonate with, with that as well. Sure. Well, we've had a brief interactions around all that, not much. So I kind of knew and yeah, so it, and you know, and I think, were you Missouri Senate? Is that right? Or no, no were we were ELCA. You were ELCA. Okay. Because I think of Missouri Senate, you know, they're the very conservative. And then you got the Wisconsin Senate, which is even more conservative. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the ELCA, but even, you know, this was, you were raised, you were born in the 80s or 70s? 79. Okay. So right at the cusp. So um, yeah, I mean, the, the ELCA was becoming more liberal, I guess, at that point, but your dad you know, anyway, I don't want to, you don't have to drag into your story. I don't, you, that's your story to tell. But yeah, I've known that we kind of share <laughs> preacher's kid syndrome <laughs> of the traumatic sort. So, and I don't mean yeah. to make light of it by laughing. You know, you have to laugh because it hurts too much to not laugh. Um, anyway. When people hear about you're connecting Jesus and communism, do you find that people have a hard time seeing the connection between the two and kind of want to either resonate with you on one level or the other? So there's a variety of responses. Um, conservative Christians, just like, no way, no way. Um, and of course, being well-read in the Bible, I can point them to Acts chapter two. I can point them to Acts chapter four. I can point them to Luke chapter six, where Jesus talks about how the the poor will receive the kingdom of God and the rich will be sent away with nothing. Um, you know, it's, it's in the gospels, it's in the book of acts and, you know, and, and I, and even the, I know that the story of Babylon, that the, the prophecy about Babylon is kind of sexist and patriarchal, but it attacks wealth so vociferously in the, that book that there are ways to talk to even conservative Christians about the radical economics of Jesus and the early Christians. They simply thought Rome was evil, but they couldn't, they didn't have the power to overthrow Rome. So they created what they could, which is essentially a series of communes. People don't understand that. People think there, there's a, there's something out there that says, or there's an interpretation that I was exposed to that the communism of the early in Jerusalem didn't spread to any of the other churches. That's simply not true. Paul talks about taking up a collection. And the word koinonia, which is the Greek word translated fellowship, is an economic word. It means um, that which is in common, koinonia. And so when Paul uses the word koinonia, which is translated fellowship, thinking about a common purse. He's really, you know, and there's a good book on this, um, Ramon and I'm going to forget his last name. Um, he uh, he was he's a um, a theologian. It's, it's it's on this the book of Acts, but it's on how this vision of communal sharing persisted in the early years of Christianity outside of Jerusalem, which everybody knows about Jerusalem, but they think it was a fluke or a one-off. Okay, so that's that's sort of how I deal with the conservative Christian reaction: is point out the radicalism throughout 
the Christian scriptures, about economics in particular. Um, the the um, more liberal Christians will tend to agree with it, but they're not willing to go to a Marxist point of view because they think you can reform society. You can make society gradually better. I wish that were true. <laughs> it would make my life, it would make, it would make some things simpler. But at, at my age, having seen reform after reform cut back since Reagan, since Clinton, you know, since George W. Bush, and even Obama. I mean, Obama did come up with Obamacare, but beyond that, and even Obamacare is not the greatest at help giving, you know, it's certainly not universal health care. It's, it's an attempt, sort of, at universal health care. Just to see social program after social program get gutted, to me, tells me that there is a structural barrier, which is capitalism itself. So that's the liberal, is liberals will kind of agree with the sort of radicalism of Jesus on economics, but then try to fit it into a reform politics. And then there are the socialists and Marxists and anarchists that are my friends who are not Christian. And some of them are very hostile to my suggestion that Jesus was a, Marx, was a communist before Marx. And they, but others, most of them will say, well, yeah, I, he, he, he cleansed the temple and his followers shared all their wealth. Yeah, they know this, but they're not Christian. They're not following Jesus. And that's perfectly fine. This is one reason I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister is because I don't think you have to be a Christian to really admire the radical Jesus. I think you can do it without any faith behind it. I have a faith, although my faith is very modern if i don't know what other word to use it's very in a, some way it's very secular faith it's not a faith in miracles it's a faith in the ethic and the mission and the experience of jesus and and the people throughout the era jesus didn't point to christians he pointed to the poor he, the poor were the most important category of human beings throughout the teachings of Jesus, not some imaginary church that was going to be built out of his sayings. What he focused on was liberating the poor in Galilee and in Judea. That's what he cared about from Roman oppression in particular, but also from the oppression of, you know, elite classes like, you know, what he says about the Pharisees and the Sadducees is because they were elites and they were exploiting poor people under Roman occupation. And he said, you know, why are you siding with Satan? Um, so multiple responses. The conservatives, Christians have one, the liberal Christians or the liberal religious or the not, you know, have, have another, and then the radicals. So I have to have different kinds of conversations with all of those three sort of main groups that I have to talk, that I talk to in, in this Church of the Revolution stuff I'm trying to do. Different conversations with different people makes a lot of sense to me. I actually had a radio show in 2010, 2011, that was focused on spirituality and social justice work. And I found that it was really hard to find people who were into both. Um, yes. I mean, there were some, but, but people tended to be interested in just one aspect or the other, instead of seeing them as, as possibly connected and and supporting each other yep yeah and it and that's that was i had a podcast in i guess my podcast was in the 2010s 
um, it was Quaker, me and another Quaker um, were talking about spirituality and social issues. She was a little, she was sort of a, a green party kind of person, but with some little more pro-capitalist than I was, but we still, we had, we did a few good episodes. I, I actually don't have any of those archived, but I did do a similar thing. I did, you know, try to have conversation about both spirituality and social issues. And you're right. It, there's, there's this divide, you know, it's like the, the, the conservatives have a lock on spirituality that even affects like you know, non-Christian spirituality is is all about higher consciousness and, you know, becoming whatever, you know, spiritually evolved and not about becoming an agent for change in the world. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. And that, you know, that's why I want to be, <laughs> I, I want to be a UU minister because Unitarian Universalism, at least in theory, wants to change the world and and be religious and spiritual at the same time. And they don't force it into a conservative Christian box. And, you know, so I, I, it was a nomination that made sense when I would decided I was going to go into the ministry, even despite the fact that I was bringing in all this Jesus stuff that you use tend to be uncomfortable with, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to find a place where every part of who you are is, is valued and, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't, I, I get my value from places. I get my value from multiple places. There isn't one where I get all my value and that's life. You actually touched on one of the questions, the last question that I was going to ask you, which was how you use have responded to your message. Uh, Cause as you mentioned, you use tend to be a little Jesus shy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Colleagues tend to be more open to it. And that's because most of our colleagues have to do some work around Christianity and seminary, right? Because even the, the UU seminary that you and I, you know, you're going to now and I went to, you still have a lot of Christianity to swallow, right? You have to take Christian history to, we used to have to take two two semesters, I think now we only have to take one, but we used to have to take two in Christian history. We had to take a theology course that was begins with liberal Christian theology. Um, eventually it moves a bit beyond it, but even, I was even disappointed that, you know, we never talked about paganism in theology class. We never talked about, you know, Buddhism. I mean, we, I did take a course on Buddhism at Meadville, but it was sort of, the curriculum is still very Christian even for a UU seminary, and most of our colleagues didn't go to UU seminaries. They went to Christian seminaries. So I find that colleagues are more open. Um, Congregations are a little more, like you say, Jesus shy or Jesus allergic. It's like, don't talk about you. Although most of them do have a Christmas Eve service (laughs) and an an Easter. They're like, my, my most Christian sermon that I did when I served the, the parish in Quincy was uh, res- Easter, and I talked about the resurrection, but I focused almost entirely on the Hebrew prophets and what they meant by resurrection. They didn't mean mm-hmm. what Jesus coming from the grave. I talked about they meant a restoration of the pe- the earth, but also of the people of God, which were not just the Jewish people, because there was 
you know, in some of these resurrection or these narratives about the end times, the Gentiles come into Judaism. That's actually prophesied in um, some of the prophets that there would be Gentiles coming into serving um, God. So that was really fun to do a sermon. And I got my most positive responses, from, even from somebody who was kind of skeptical about me. They really liked my sermon on resurrection um, on Easter. But yeah, you use our, our, our little heart hard to they're not always comfortable they're, they tend to not be comfortable with jesus and that's because of the captivity of christianity to the right wing and mm-hmm. people and people like you and me who grew up traumatized by christianity um i had to go through a whole agnostic period where i just i'm not i'm not gonna read the bible i'm not gonna think about i'm just gonna be a nice secular working man taking care of my family going to you know going to sunday worship with quakers where nobody talks to me (laughs) that was my escape was was to just sort of retreat into this very contemplative practice that didn't confront me with the church or whatever although all that stuff keeps coming up in my silent meditation you know because because what trauma what troubles you is what comes up when you're in silent meditation that's kind of why the mystics want us to do it because it surfaces things we don't want to think about um anyway so you use um yeah it's 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 a mix i mean there are my home church is christian and uu the people's church of chicago um and Mm -hmm. they started out you you though they started independent liberal and then became unitarian and then became United Church of Christ in the 80s when the senior minister retired in the 80s. And so they became both. And that's where they are now. And that was good for me. I got to, I worked with, you know, my first year mentor at seminary was a, was the pastor who was UU. She had been raised UU, but she was pastoring this church that was essentially a Christian, liberal Christian church. Um, and it was, you know, there's great things about people's church it was it was exactly the church i needed to come into unitarian universalism in um but you know i but my theology is so unorthodox that most christians don't quite follow it even i have really good ucc colleagues and you know they're they're they love me and they think i'm great and they're like wow i don't think i could preach that in my church <laughs> i'm like yeah you probably couldn't <laughs> but that's okay <laughs> so yeah i i've gone back and forth on like maybe i'd be better off in the ucc but but it's 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 a different set of barriers there that to what i find in uu so when you said you had an agnostic period was going yeah. to people's church how you pulled out of that? Well, so I mentioned the I was in a writing course where I had to kind of do a memoir, and I did chose to write about living with a commune in in the eighties, the, the latter eighties, um, and early nineties, and that that sort of got me back on okay, it, I can talk about Jesus, but I don't need to talk about God yet. <laughs> that was a mm. much longer the deconstruction as it were because my agnosticism says god probably the the god of the bible is probably not literally true that and i still would say that's true the god of the bible is not to be taken literally true um and so 
and I would say that, I mean, I've seen atheists out there, Christians who say, you know, God, God died in Jesus on the cross, right? That, that's the way they sort of reconcile atheism and Christianity is that in the death of Jesus, God died. I don't find that yeah. terribly convincing. <laughs> um, I get why it works for people. It doesn't work for me. What I say is that the God of the biblical text was a God of basically pre-scientific civilization, and they didn't understand certain things. And so they attributed all the wonders of creation and nature and all the extraordinary events that happened to this being they called God. And, you know, and Jesus probably kind of accepted that culture, but he was also somewhat of an enlightened figure. So he, the degree to which he bought into it literally, I think is open for debate. Because he talks about God in very different terms than the surrounding, but he talks about God more in intimate terms, God as father, um, but also God as judge. You know, he's going to take away the poor, take away the wealth from the poor and give it to the, sorry, from the rich and give it to the poor, right? He's, he, Jesus has that God in there, but he also has God as this intimate father figure who's guiding him. And that's an, that, you know, so all that can be written mystically rather than literally. And that is what helps. But but me coming becoming more comfortable with God, I mean, I have my own thing because God the Father, I mean, I had a father who just I could not <laughs> could not, you know, describe in, in terribly positive terms. I mean, there were good things about my dad, but for the most part, or I shouldn't say for the most part, you don't want to get, you know, that's called splitting. He was a complicated human being. And I carry a lot of trauma from my relationship to him. So calling God father is really not a starter. I call God mother. I call God mother. And I, you know, I'm totally comfortable with that. And when I say God, I mean the cosmos. I'm a pantheist. The divine being is this creativity that flows through every particle of the of the universe. And it's it's amazing. And we humans do terrible shit with this creativity but that doesn't mean the creativity isn't there it's just being deformed and distorted by human maliciousness um you know that's how i explain capitalism <laughs> it, in, in part capitalism is a good idea because it's about pricing things carefully which is a smart thing to do but then you use those prices to rip off the poor oh okay so it's not so good um and so I, so, so to me, the cosmos, I'm, I'm a very much a science fiction kid, right? Star Trek and all that. And so I imagine the infinite multiverse as this sort of goddess, right? That, that is just constantly giving birth to new universes with new life forms and all, all the love and not love that goes on in all of these multiple verse universes. That's God. That to me is this infinite creativity that's how i understand god but you know it's definitely takes a feminine or a non-binary shape for me when i imagine any kind of intentionality which i don't really try not to get too literal about the intentionality behind the creativity in the cosmos so have i moved on from agnosticism i think i still have pretty strong reservations about theism in general but i call myself hmm. a pantheist to make to make sense of all that okay <laughs> thank you for the question yeah well i i i'm a pantheist as well or a panentheist um mm -hmm. 
as well as a polytheist on a lot of things. Um, yeah. I'm sure, I don't know if you know this, but right now I'm serving in a Methodist church. I do know. I, I've tried to catch a few of your, your sermons. I don't know that I've been able to, to do it yet, but I, yeah. And Broadway Methodist is a great congregation. I'm, I hope you're having a good experience there. Yeah, absolutely. And I've definitely gotten over my Jesus shyness because <laughs> there's been a lot of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we go, would you like to, is there anything you'd like to plug? So um, my next step is I'm planning to self-publish a book <laughs> and I'm hoping to do it this weekend. I, 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 I always, I don't want to go to, I don't want a hard promise that it will get done this weekend, but I do want to try to get it done this weekend. Um, I, the first draft is done. I'm working on the second draft and hopefully that's the one I can publish. It's called Jesus Made Me a Communist. It'll be on Kindle. You can print it. You don't have to get the Kindle. You can go to the print version. Um, I only doing Amazon because it's the, the easiest way to get out in front of a lot of people right away is using Amazon. I know there's problems with Amazon. Um, so, but Jesus made me a communist will be out, you know, if, if not this week, next week or the week after <laughs> my life is in kind of turmoil because I am taking a parish position starting in August, um, in another part of the country. I can't talk really about where yet. Um, okay. so the book. And then I'm doing a debate with a Christian, a Catholic libertarian about whether Jesus was a communist on June 11th, on the Saturday. It's based here in Chicago, but it'll be on Zoom. Um, I've talked to this guy before a few times. I don't agree with him, but he wanted to debate me. So we're going to debate. And that's why I want to get the book out this weekend so that the book is I can point people. If you want to know more, here's my book. Um, and then after those two things are done, I'm hoping to do more. Church of the Revolution YouTube content. So I have a YouTube channel. I also have a Patreon. You can support me. And I can send you my link tree so that you can put it in your show notes um, if you want to. That's, you know, you don't have to. But that's my, that's where I'm trying to collect all of my Church of the Revolution links so that people can find me pretty easily. It's on my link tree. Okay, that sounds great. I hope people do check you out. All right. And yeah, you can look, you can Google Kami Preacher or Reverend Charlie Arp or Church of the Revolution. You'll probably get a hit with one of those. That's that's my my content. And Facebook, I'd still do a lot of on Facebook. YouTube is kind of dormant, but I'm planning to launch, relaunch YouTube content after the debate is over in June, June 11th. So. Thanks. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Charlie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Pip. Anytime. I'm happy to come back for anything else. Okay, sounds great. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again another day on Pip Talk.